Hey, welcome to Restoration Church. Uh, it is good to be here today. Good to have you here with us. Uh, my name is Pastor Kevin. If I have not had the chance to greet you, I hope I get the chance to do that this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to jump in. We're in Daniel chapter 3 today. Uh, Daniel chapter 3. If you don't, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you don't bring one, or maybe you don't have one, uh, we've got an usher in the back, and he'd love to give you one of these Bibles. Uh, hardback, beautiful black, with gold inscription on the front. It's not real gold, it's just the color gold. And uh, we'd love to give you one of those and uh, let you be able to follow along. Um, Daniel chapter 3, as you're turning there, um, I wanted to tell you a, a little something that happened in the, the life of my family. Uh, a couple weeks ago, actually two weeks ago, uh, we got a kitten. Just kidding, I wouldn't have done that. Um, two weeks ago, my family and I, we got a puppy. And I think we've got a picture of our puppy, Piper. Um, that is Piper, the newest member of the Diet family. Um, she is a Labradoodle uh, puppy, and uh, we, we love her to death. And uh, if you know anything about me, I, I like dogs. I, I'm a puppy guy. Um, that other critter, you know, um, a pet is supposed to be an animal that you can pet, and that's why I like dogs. That's why I don't like the other ones, because you see, what I'm, see where I'm going with that? Um, anyways, we love having this puppy at home. But one of the things I've noticed is having a puppy is tough. Like, it's tough having a puppy. Because as you're playing with the puppy, all the puppy wants to do is nibble on your hands and just bite, 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 bite. Okay? And then the other thing that happens with a puppy is you're walking through the house and you're stepping in. And, oh, what did I just step in? And my father-in-law owns the house that we're living in. Dan, I promise I'll shampoo the carpets when we're done. Um, but this is, this is a hard thing about having a puppy. Is, is you've got to train this puppy. Uh, you've got to train him how to not to nibble. You've got to train him to, to go potty outside. And you've got to do these things. And there's this hard season. And it's totally worth it. Because there'll be a day when this puppy gets it figured out. And she'll just be the most playful uh, little friend for our family to have for years and years to come. But there's this, there's this season of just hardship. And, you know, the puppy doesn't sleep through the night yet. And, and all these things that we've got to deal with that will, in the long run ultimately pay off for our family. This is kind of the story in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, we're going to hear a story that many of us probably know. Maybe you've heard the story of Daniel and the fire, or uh, the three boys in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you say, well, well, that's a kid's story. And, and it's not just a kid's story. This is a story I'm glad that our, our Sunday school teachers, I'm glad they teach our kids the Bible. I'm glad they're learning these stories from the Bible. But this is an, an adult story with, with adult application and things that you and I are going to learn from. And so we're going to look at this, this, this story of, of Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And we're going to see what it means for us to stand out, how we stand out for our faith. So uh, Daniel chapter 3, before we jump in, I'm going to ask you just to join me in a word of prayer. God, just want to thank you for who you are today. God, thank you for um, thank you for making dogs and uh, just the joy that they bring to families. And uh, we celebrate you that for that. We praise you for that. And uh, God, we, cele- we celebrate you and praise you for being here today and allowing us to be gathered with your people. And God, as we open up your word, God, this is even greater than anything we could ask. It's the opportunity to have your word speak to us. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would draw us into yourself. God, as we open up your word, that you'd give us exactly what it is we need to hear today. That you'd encourage us in our faith, that you'd convict us of areas we need to be convicted, and that you'd, God, help us to know you and to make you known. Jesus, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. 
Uh, Daniel chapter 3, you can follow along in your Bible. We also have it up here. We're going to look at the first couple of verses. And here's, here's what Daniel, Daniel chapter 3 says. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was 6 cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half. So this image was, was uh, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And it says, And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather all the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then all of those people, all those people that we just said, they gathered for the dedication of the image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And I'm going to clarify, like when we hear about this, this great statue, you might think of um, Easter. You know, you think of it, you get to Easter and you get that Easter bunny that's full of chocolate. And you open it up and you take a bite into it and you become disappointed because it's hollow on the inside. Okay, chances are that this, this image, this statue that was built, it wasn't solid gold. Chances are it was made out of wood and it was covered in gold. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like that Easter thing where it's cool, but it's just not as cool as it could be. But still, this is a 90-foot gold-plated statue. And, and what the king does is he says, I'm going to gather all of these people. And you'll say, well, well why, why does he build a statue? Like, 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 like why a 90-foot statue? What's significant about this? And again, this is where we've got to understand the context of what we have been studying in the book of Daniel. Because if we remember last week, Dan, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? There was this, this giant statue in his dream. And the, the statue had a head of gold. He had arms uh, and shoulders of silver. His, his belly and his thighs were made of bronze. His legs were made of iron. And the statue's feet were, were made of uh, iron mixed with clay. And so he had this, this dream. He saw this image. And if you remember, uh, he couldn't interpret it. All the wise men of the land couldn't interpret it until Daniel comes along and says, let me interpret it for you. King, you are the head of gold. You are a great, powerful leader. You are a great nation. But Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be other kingdoms that come after you. And they will overthrow your kingdom. And as, as great and as powerful as you are, Nebuchadnezzar, you are temporary. Your kingdom and your reign is only temporary. And this was, this was, a, it was an opportunity of, of hope for King Nebuchadnezzar because God was giving him an opportunity. Hey, you're going to invest in this kingdom that's not going to last. Nebuchadnezzar invested the kingdom of God because it's the kingdom that's going to last forever. And so Nebi is sitting here thinking, this is a few years later, he's sitting here thinking, you know, why do I have to be a head of gold? Like, why, why do I just have to be a head of gold? I want to be greater than that. Like, I want to be someone that's known forever. And he goes, oh, I got it. I got an idea. You know, the dream had me be a head of gold, but what if I was an entire body of gold? Like, maybe then, maybe then I would be a little bit better and greater. And so he, he does this. He, he builds this 90-foot statue of him in gold. And the story of Daniel chapter 2 is that God has a plan. God has a kingdom. And he invites King Nebuchadnezzar into that. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to see that your kingdom is temporary. And to invest in the eternal kingdom of God. And Nebuchadnezzar, we know, he chose his own plan. 
He said, I'm going to make it all about me. I want to be the star of the show. I want everybody to know how great I am. So he builds this 90-foot statue. Listen, you and I, we have that same decision. We have the same decision on, on whose kingdom are we going to invest in? Because we can invest in our own little kingdom right here. Our own little circle of influence, our own little uh, bank account, our own little uh, whatever it is. We can invest in our own little kingdom or we have the opportunity to invest in the kingdom of God. We have this opportunity to say, am I going to make it about me or am I going to make it about God? And, And what happens is so many times we thumb our nose at God, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And say, sure, God, I know that you've called me to do these things. I know that you've called me to be a part of your kingdom. But you know what? I want to make it about my career, about my wishes, about my desires, about my beliefs, about what I want to do. And listen, we need to understand if that's you today, you need to know that your kingdom will not last. Your kingdom will not last. And it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that he allows us and encourages us. Hey, we have an opportunity now to invest in something that is eternal, that will last forever. And that's the kingdom of God. So Nebi, he builds this 90-foot statue. And, and, and he's looking at his expanded kingdom. And he says, you know, we need to do something to, to unify the kingdom. And so he builds this 90-foot statue. He calls all the leaders together. And he says, here's the idea to unify the nation. Let's have them worship me. So here's what he says in verse 4. He writes and says, And the herald proclaimed aloud, he said, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the, uh, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now that sounds like a great way to build unity, right? You need to worship these things, and if you don't, you're going to die. That's a great way to build unity. We ought to try that sometime. And it says, therefore, verse 7, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of all the music, that all the peoples, nations, and languages, they fell down, and they worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, it's interesting because I, I did a little research in a few commentaries this week. They said, well, how many people are there? He calls all the leaders from from all of this nation. And there are some conservative uh, guesstimates that there was 15,000 people all the way up to 100,000 leaders that he brought together. It's a lot of people. It says every one of them bowed down. They bowed down to worship this, this image, except for three, except for three people. Verse eight, it says, therefore, at that time, Certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, king, live forever! Kissing on his backside. King, live forever! You, king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn or the pipe and all the music, they shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. He says, this is what you said. Verse 12 But there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So let's just picture this in your mind. Okay, there's 
There's somewhere between 15,000 to 100,000 people gathered together. And I picture kind of like a stadium. I picture they're at, at CenturyLink, the Seahawks field. They're at the CenturyLink. And everybody's there. And the music starts. And everybody bows down. Do you think the king can tell that up in that section way over there, there's three boys not bowing down? There's no way he can see that. I mean, he's got that many people there. There's no way that he can see, hey, look, those three boys aren't bowing down. The only way that he's going to, to know is when somebody snitches on those boys. It's the only way to tell. If you're nearby, you can see, hey, those boys aren't bowing down. But if, if Nebuchadnezzar's looking at the whole crowd, he can't tell that. See, those boys were watched. Listen, it's the same thing that happened in that day that happens in our day. The moment that we declare that we are a Christian, the moment that we declare that we go to church, the moment that we set ourselves apart as being a follower of God, there's going to be people in your life, people around you, family and neighbors and coworkers and friends that are all going to be watching you. They're going to keep their eyes on you. And you're in the office and, and, and you let a word slip. And, and you, you let that word slip and somebody's going to say to you, Oh, I thought you were a Christian. I didn't know Christians talk like that. And you're saying, Well, I'm going to show you something even better than that, buddy. This is where, this is where your family gets into uh, some sort of, of, of argument, some sort of fight. And the moment that you jump in, one of your family members says, Oh, well, I thought you were a Christian. You say, well, I'm going to punch you with my Christian fist. Let's go out back right now, buddy. See, the moment that you and I take a stand for God, there's people around us who are watching our every move. Oftentimes waiting to tear us down. To say, hey, look at you. And, and I'm going to call you out. This is the way the Babylon was then. And this is the way our world is now. People are always watching looking for the opportunity to tear us down. In fact, Jesus, Jesus was, was betrayed. He was killed. He was crucified by the people closest to him. In fact, the person that betrayed Jesus was one of his innermost 12 disciples that were around him all the time. This is the reality of our life. When we make a stand for God, there's going to be people around us who are watching us, who are going to point fingers at us, and are going to try and call us out. And this is what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The people closest to them are watching. They say, hey, king, hey, king, there are some Jews, there are some of those people who claim to worship the one true God, who don't worship the rest of the gods like we do, who believe that they have the truth. He says, they say, we, we, we sat behind those Christians. We sat behind those boys. And this is what happened. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. In verse 13, it says that Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage. Yeah, this guy is a guy who has an issue with anger. We've already known some of the things that he's done. We've known that, that Nebuchadnezzar in the past had taken kings and impaled them on sticks and burned them over an open fire. We know that last week Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and I'm going to destroy your, your houses. And we know that he actually makes good on those promises. He is an evil man. So he's filled with rage. And he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar, verse 14, answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the music, fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Put yourself there. The most powerful king in the entire world. A king who has anger problems. And he brings these boys up and says, all right, here's what's going to happen. We're going to play the music again. And if you bow down and worship this image, great. But if you don't, I'm going to put you in the fiery furnace and you're going to die. Put yourself in his shoes. These are boys, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. These are young men. I mean, how many of us would say, man, I could sure rationalize the reason to compromise in that, in that situation. Like, in, I, like I could just sit down and come up with a number of reasons as to why I should bow down before that image. I mean, I, I could bow down. Nebuchadnezzar says bow. I could just bow and pray to God. Like, hey, God. That image doesn't really mean anything to me, but I'm just doing this. Oh, it's done. I'm done. That's easy enough. But I could, I could, when the music starts, I could say, oh, look, there's a penny on the ground. I got to pick up this penny and I got to tie my shoe. Like they, like just think about all the ways that they could uh, rationalize and, and compromise. I mean, I mean, they could have said, well, you know, I'll just do this today. I'll just do this today. And I'll, and I'll worship the image, and then tomorrow I'll wake up, and I'll have that guilt, and I'll pray and say, God, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? And, and, and we'll do what many of us do time and time again, and have experienced the same kind of thing day in and day out. Verse 11, it said that all the peoples, all the languages, all, all the people that were there, all the other captives... All the other Jewish boys who went to Babylon High and were given uh, positions within the kingdom, everybody else bowed down. They could have said, well, everybody else is doing it, and they're fine. Yeah, it's not that big of a deal. God will forgive me. They could have said, well, you know what? God has done all this for us. God, God took us through being captive. God took us through Babylon High. God took us and gave us a position of leadership in, in Babylon. Like, God wouldn't do all of this just to kill us. Like, certainly God, certainly that's not the kind of thing a loving God would do. So certainly God would want me to bow down to this image because he's done all of this stuff for me in the past. So, of course, God does want me to die now. He could have said, you know what? I can't, I can't, I have to bow down. Because if I'm dead, like who's going to tell all these people about Jesus? Like if I'm dead, if I, if I don't bow down and he kills me, like all these Babylonians, Babylonians aren't going to know about who God is and about who Jesus is. So I need to bow down to the image. That way God can use me to save all these people. See, we are trained in our culture. We are trained in our culture to look as much a part of the world as we can. To, to, to be a part of it the best that we can, to the best of our ability. We're inside, we claim, hey, I love Jesus. Inside, I'm a Christian. But outwardly, we're cowardly. Looking like everybody else in the world. We refuse to stand out in the crowd. Whether it be in our school, in our, in our workplace, with our family whether it be on social media, whether it be the things that we choose to entertain ourselves with, the, the music we listen to, the, the, the shows that we watch, 
We live in a way that nobody's going to discern that we're any different than anybody else. See, unfortunately, we've learned this, this, this art of kneeling on the outside. Of kneeling on the outside, just like the crowd. Of compromising and being like everybody else. But inwardly telling ourselves, that's all right, I got God. That's what I do on Sundays. I'm a Christian, it's okay. Listen, if we're a Christian, if you're following Jesus... If you're truly following God's call in your life. Satan, who's our enemy. The world is going to give you ample opportunity to compromise what you know to be true. To compromise the way you're supposed to live so you look like everybody else around you. The question is, will you and I, are we willing to stand out? Are we willing to be found out as being a follower of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to be discovered? Because ultimately, for those three boys, that took a lot of guts. That took a lot of guts for them to say, everybody's bowing down, and we're going to stand. Now listen, you and I, we're probably not going to be asked to bow before a 90-foot image. We've kind of progressed from that. We don't really do that. But we have all sorts of idols. All sorts of idols that we begin to, to pursue. Say, well, what's an idol? An idol is, is what motivates us. It's, it's the thing that we pursue thinking it will give us uh, peace and satisfaction and joy. And we have all sorts of idols that we do pursue. Sometimes it's reputation and our ego. We want people, this is how I'm thought of. And so we want people to think highly of us. And so we put on that, 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 that gold on the outside. And we fail to look at what's happening on the inside. So we don't want people to know about our, our, our hurts and our scrapes and our pains and our tarnishes on the inside. So outwardly, we put on that, that, that portrayal of being gold, of everything being good and great. While on the inside, we're really rotten away. We really aren't that good on the inside. Some of us have the idol of success. We like it when people applaud us. And so we look, we, we look and we use our, our title, we use our, our position, we use our skills, our talents, our hobbies as a way to get that applause and to get that good job, you're a good person. And this is what happens. This is why many of us start investing more time in work than we do at home. Because oftentimes at home, we just don't feel like we're that good. Like we just don't feel like that, that great of a parent. I just don't feel like I'm, I'm that great of a husband. But you know what happens when I go to work? I've got a title. Because of that title, that deserves a certain amount of respect. And it's easier for me to go to work and have that applaud and have that respect because I get more respect there than I do at home. This is where we have hobbies, things that we're good at. And oftentimes, you know what? We appreciate when somebody says, hey, you're, you're good at that. Hey, that's awesome. Good job. I want to be like you. And guess what we begin to do? We begin to pour our energies into those things because we like the applause. We like to feel like we're, we're validated, like we're worth something. And there are, are some of us in here who have relationships that we should not have. And what we're doing is we're pursuing that relationship because we want to have love. We want to have companionship. We'll say, you know what, I'll just compromise. All give in. I know that God said this is the way that relationships are supposed to work. This is the way that marriage is supposed to work. But you know what? Because I want this, I'll just compromise what I know to be true. Because this makes me happy. 
What is it that you choose over God? What is it the area in your life that you find it easy to compromise and justify what you do? Sometimes it's even a good thing. Sometimes it's something like family. You say, well, well, family's not a bad thing. Like, sure, my family, I'll do anything for. I'll lie for my family. I'll cheat for my family. I'll work till, and put all my resources in providing for my family so I don't have any time or resources to invest in the kingdom of God. What is it that you choose over God? Because the world is going to tell us, bow down. The world is going to tell us, compromise that faith in God to pursue all these other things that we're supposed to pursue. And the question is, will you stand out? Will you stand out and be known as being a worshiper of God? Because we're going to be able to see through the rest of this chapter the, the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're going to say, this is what a true follower of God looks like. This is what it looks like to have a true and genuine faith in God. Three things of what it looks like to have a true and genuine faith in God. The first one is that a true and genuine faith in God obeys God instead of following man. Remember that scene? They're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, hey, we're going to play the music and I want you to bow. And if not, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. Verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered, and they said to the king, O Nebi, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't need to give you an answer, Nebuchadnezzar. Like, I don't, like, we don't need to pray about it. Like, we don't need to think about it. We don't need to fast. We don't need to go on social media and tell everybody what's going on and say, help me decide what I should do. Should I do this or should I do that? They weren't seeking consensus. In fact, I don't think they made a decision that day at all. I think they made that decision two chapters ago. At the very beginning, on the first day of Babylon High. Remember in chapter 1, it says they purposed in their heart that they would not defile themselves before God. I think they already made this decision. They already decided, predetermined, I'm going to be obedient to God. No matter what. I'm going to do what I know God would want me to do, no matter what. Faith obeys God instead of following man, instead of listening to what man tells us we should do. In fact, a number of years ago, I was working for the state patrol. And this was a, this was a great job. I loved my job. It was fun. And uh, it, was a, it was a state job. So, you know, there's some security in a state job. It had, had good pay. There was a lot of opportunity for me to figure out, you know, other areas to go and, and work within the state patrol. And uh, good benefits. I had benefits for my whole family. And it was a great thing. And a great job. And then I remember the door opened at Madison House. And they were saying, uh, the opportunity was for me to go work at Madison House. In fact, as we started talking to people and wrestling with, man, should we, is this what God is leading us to do? We started talking to some other people around us and they said, Kevin, you're crazy. Kevin, Madison House, like you're taking a pay cut to go work in ministry. Kevin, they don't provide benefits for your family. Kevin, there's not going to be many raises. There's not much opportunity for advancement there. And I remember we started hearing all of this around us. And this is where you have to say, who does faith obey? Does faith obey what everybody else says is a thing to do? Or does faith obey what God has called you to do? 
We made a decision. We're going to obey God. And we took the pay cut. And we, we, we lost the benefits. And God blessed. And God was gracious in that. Because true and genuine faith, it obeys God, not man. Not what everybody else says you're supposed to do. It obeys what God has called you to do. Second thing about true and genuine faith is faith obeys in spite of what it sees. Faith obeys in spite of what it sees. Verse 17, the boys say, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He says, our God is able, and we believe he will do this. See, this is, this is, there's a, a big difference between knowing that God is able to do something in your life and actually believing that he will. There's a big difference between knowing he's able and actually believing that he will. It doesn't matter what the circumstances look like in your world. Do you believe God can do something in your life? And not only do you believe that God can, do you believe that God will do something in those circumstances. See, when you have a situation in your life and it's just rocking your world, turning it upside down, these are the two steps. First, do you have trust in God? That he is there with you. And secondly, do you believe that he is not only able, but that God is willing to do something in your life? See, this is where you get the medical report. The diagnosis. Do you trust and believe that God can and will and wants to heal? This is where where you get to the point where your bank account is is low. And you have to do a couple things. First, you have to decide, I'm going to stop buying $5 cups of coffee. Secondly, I'm going to make a decision to go get a job. And third, I'm going to believe that God is willing to be my provider. Because that is who he is. This is where your relationship, you've got a relationship around you that's fallen apart. Question is, do you believe that God is able and God is willing to restore that relationship? What I find is so many of us begin to have this doubt that creeps into our lives. This doubt creeps into our lives and we get stuck because we think, well, this is, this is who I am. This is just the way it's always going to be. We get stuck in those ways that we allow ourselves to think. And we allow our circumstances to define us. Well, this is the way it's always been. This is the way my parents were, so this is how I'm going to be as well. This is the way I've always responded to stress, and so this is what's always going to happen in my life. And so we allow these circumstances to define who we are, to affect how we pray, to affect how we believe, and affect how we hope about the future. But this is what the boys are telling us. God is not confined to the things that you see. God is not confined to the things that you see. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is able to do abundantly and and far more than we could ever ask. Why do we have to doubt? God is not confined to what we see. In fact, I think back to that time at Madison House. When I got hired at Madison House, I was 22 years old. I was undereducated. I was underqualified. I couldn't even grow a good beard. Like, like I should, there's no reason I should have gotten that job. But there was a guy named Jack Peters. And Jack looked and saw more than this. He looked and said, man, I see 
potential. I see God's hand. And Jack went and he vouched for me. He vouched for me with Rick Phillips. And Rick Phillips decided to give me a chance to hire me at Madison House. And God gave us a fruitful season of ministry there. And and in that season of ministry, God burned in me this passion to see a church that wasn't just brown or wasn't just white, but a, a church that it doesn't matter what color you're from. It doesn't matter what side of town you're on. We worship the same Jesus. And God began to burn that passion into me. Hey, what if there was a church that did that? That was a gospel-centered church that, that, that preached God's word. That didn't matter what, what background you came from. We could worship the same God. Listen, 12, 13 years ago, nobody saw that. Nobody saw that in me. Nobody saw that in the city. But that's what faith does. Faith trusts what God is doing despite what we see. Despite overwhelming odds. God is not confined just to what we see. God can do and is able and willing to do far more than we could ever imagine. Third thing about true and genuine faith. It teaches us that our job is to, is to obey. Obedience is our responsibility, but the outcome is God's. See, if we're going to live out what God has called us to do, God has called us, uh, and we're going to live God's purpose for our life, that's where our job ends. We obey what God has called us to do. And at that point, that's when God's job begins. Because he is going to bring the outcome. We obey, we are faithful, And how it plays out is up to God. But here's what the boys say in in verse 18. They say, God, we believe he's able. We believe he's willing. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They said, you know what? Despite what happens, we're leaving the outcome to God. We will not do what, what we're not supposed to do. And it's easy for us to hear that and say, well, well, duh. Of course those boys aren't going to to bow down. We know what's going to happen. Like God's going to meet them in the fire furnace and carry them through and they're going to survive. Like like we know that. And so it's easy for us to say, well, of course they're going to, you know, not bow down because we know the story. But you got to picture yourselves in the middle of that story. These three young boys, they don't know what's going to happen. In fact, there's, there's, there's this crazy idea. Like fire versus man, like fire usually wins. Like, there's not many cases that man is able to withstand fire. But these, and so these boys, they understand, hey, fire usually wins when it's against man. They don't know what God is doing, yet their faith is still unwavering. We're going to obey God despite what we don't know what's going to happen. Well, they know that God's goodness. They know of God's heart. They know of God's power. They say, you know what, we're going to obey regardless. says, verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these young men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into, uh, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Listen, just because we are obedient to God does not guarantee 
does not guarantee that we're going to be free of hardship. It does not guarantee we're going to have this easy life if we follow Jesus. The reality is, most people who are going to face the fire are going to lose. That's just, that's just how life works. But this story isn't about us having an easy life. The story is about standing out for God regardless of the circumstances. This is what the story is teaching us. Like, God, can he save us from a horrendous situation? Absolutely. We believe that God is able. We believe he is willing. But that's not a guarantee. Because the story is trying to teach us something different. Verse 24 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And Nebi answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. See, is God, is God able to save us from, from any situation and circumstance? Yes, absolutely. And sometimes what God does, instead of saving us, is God simply takes us through whatever it is we're going through. He takes us through the fire. God will show his power to us in different ways in our life. But listen, one of the most beautiful manifestations of God's power and presence in our life, one of the most tangible realities of the presence of God, where you will experience his presence best, is right through the middle of the fire. You will experience his presence like you've never experienced it before. Listen, this is probably something that some of us need to hear today. We need to know that sometimes the most tangible presence of Christ is going to be as God is leading us through the fire. And we can experience that relationship with him, that fellowship with him, because he's right there with us in the middle of it. Verse 26, and it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out of here. What are you known by? Notice, he called them, you servants of the Most High God. Because they were willing to be discovered, because they were willing to stand out, Nebuchadnezzar, he knows they're different. He knows they are servants of God. So he doesn't call and say, hey, you losers. Hey, you traitors. Hey, you outcasts. He says, no, you servants of the Most High God, come on out of here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out of the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and all the wise people, they gathered together. And they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. See, I'm not sure if you understood this. These boys came out of the fire. And not a hair of their head was singed. Nothing was wrong with them. Except there's, there's one thing that did burn. I'm not sure if you missed this. There's one thing that did burn. Nothing, none of their clothes burned. None of their body burned. There's no first, second, third degree burns on them. But if you remember, it says that when they were thrown into the fire, they were bound. Nebuchadnezzar and his leaders, they bound the men and they threw them into the fire. Verse 25 says, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. When they were thrown in, they were bound. And now that they're in the fire, they're, they're free. They're no longer bound. The fire burned that which had bound them. 
And here's something that I think is significant for us to understand. Some, some of us in here are facing a fire. It might be a big thing. It might be a small thing. And we're praying and begging God, God, would you deliver me from this hardship in my life? Listen, can I just suggest that perhaps the thing you're praying that God would remove you from, God is using to free you from something else. This is where Romans 28, 828 says, God uses all things to work together for our good for those who love God. And sometimes God is going to allow us into the fire to, to free us from the things that bind us, to free us from the things that hold us back. There's a season of growth that's going to come if we just remain faithful. Verse 28 says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. And here's, here's something I want you to underline. This is probably the theme of chapter 3. The end of verse 28 says, And yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. These boys were willing to give up their life rather than serve or worship any other god but the one true god. Didn't matter what the world offers of success or failure, they were willing to follow God regardless of what was going to happen to them. It says, verse 29, to close out the chapter, it says, Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Do you remember? Remember, remember what he said when he threw him in? He said, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's no God who can rescue you from the fire. Chapter 1, when, when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar took the, the good stuff out of the God's temple and took it into his God's temple, he's trying to say, hey, your God is dead. And time and time again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, they show our God is not dead. Our God is very much alive. And Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to see that. Hey, there is a God in heaven. He is real. See, when we look at this chapter, a lot of Christians think, well, if I just follow Jesus, like I shouldn't have any hardships. I shouldn't suffer. Like God will make my life better. Like we'd love to believe that. Like isn't that one of the reasons why we think Christianity sounds so great? Well, that's not biblical Christianity. In fact, Jesus, in John chapter 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, whether you're a Christian or not, you will have trouble. And then he gives this encouragement that says, take heart because I have overcome the world. In fact, there's a pastor that I heard, and he said, he said um, most people, he said, you're either, you're either coming out of a fire, you're in the middle of a fire, or you're going into the fire. You're either coming out of a hard time, a difficulty, you're in the middle of one, or you're heading into one. Listen, I don't know the situation that you're facing in your life right now. I don't know the fire you're walking into. Might be a financial fire. Might be a health-related fire. Might be a relational situation. It might be an unstable job. And sometimes we want to say, well, I just got to figure out why this is happening. We're not, try, we're not supposed to try and figure out how to make things better. Say, well, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to do what's right. So why is this happening to me? Listen, in the middle of that fire, there's encouragement 
from this chapter, as well as this encouragement from 1 Peter. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, he says, when you're facing various trials, he says, these have come so that the proven genuous of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though uh, refined through the fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, when we're walking through the fire, when we're going through hardships and life, it shows the depths and the quality of our faith. Fires of this life, they show the, the, the quality and the depth of our faith. And the question for every one of us is, are we willing to stand out? In the midst of the fire, the midst of, of, of potential difficulty in life, are you willing to stand out for, from the crowd? Are you willing to stand out for Jesus? To show true faith, to obey God rather than compromising like men.